Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey everybody and welcome back to Headstrong, the podcast where I sit down with somebody in the public eye to talk to them about every aspect of their life, from the ups to the downs and how that has helped shape them who they are. This is actually my penultimate episode of this first series, episode number five. Next week I'll be finishing on episode number six with a super special guest who I will announce at the end of this episode. So be sure to listen to the end of the episode to find out who that is. Or alternatively, check us out on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, and I'll be posting some artwork up there soon. So my guest this week is the incredibly talented and just simply wonderful person that is Laura Crane. Most of you guys will know Laura from Stirring the Pot in Love Island 2018. However, Laura started surfing at the age of 11 and actually had an incredibly successful surfing career in her young adult years. But it wasn't always plain surfing for Laura in that surfing world. She ended up comparing herself to others in that community and ended up experiencing some issues along the way. I also talked to her about her battle with sepsis that she experienced at the end of 2018 and how that really put life into perspective and how important it is now to just have a positive mindset. So I really hope you guys enjoy this episode. Laura Crane, welcome to Headstrong, the podcast. Thank Hello. you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Um, I... I just did tell you this, but you were the first person that I ever tried to get onto this podcast. I know. I can't, now I'm sad that I wasn't the first one. Well, don't worry. You still did it. I think you were just seriously, seriously busy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, your agent was just like, look. And then actually, actually, do you know what? I was ghosted. 
Really? I was ghosted oh for about a solid month. Did you month. DM me? No, I, well, oh, I, no, okay. I did DM you ages ago <laughs> oh, when okay. I first ever tried to get Pre- you on. Bef- before Love Island. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, here we go. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm into surfers. Oh, uh, right. No, well, uh, that makes sense. No, um, no just Lauren, um, I emailed her and we were chatting for ages and ages and then off about a month and a half, I just didn't hear from her. And then she just replied, being like, oh my God, Louis, I forgot about you. Oh, And then here we, we are. We won't forget about you again, never. Oh, promise. so sweet. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It means the world to me. Um, I'm going to do a little bit of a slightly different way with your podcast. I just want to go through literally your life chronologically. And when we hit some speed bumps, we're going to talk about them and see what happens. Is that cool? Perfect. Sounds okay. great. So I don't know about before the age of 11 because... That's when you first got into surfing, right? Mm-hmm. Like you moved to Croyd, North Devon. Yeah. And your dad taught you how to surf. Yeah. That's pretty mad. Pretty cool. Good dad. Great dad. Great dad. Wouldn't be here now without him. <laughs> and so that was your first time ever surfing at 11? Um, I actually surfed before that. So I think the first time that I'd ever surfed, we, I was actually born in Bristol. So we used to go to Devon every weekend. We had a little like holiday home down there. So we used to go there every weekend. And then I was really into loads of other sports. Like surfing was never really, because I was living in Bristol, so it was never really anything that I Mm. started because all the sports that I kind of did, I just wanted to be like really good at and because I couldn't spend that much time in the water. Surfing was like, "Mm, Bristol's not not exactly ideal for the surfing community. Actually say that, Western Supermare, I have surfed at Western Supermare once, I know. Won't have it again, but it's happened once. Um, But no, the first time that I surfed, I think I was probably about nine or ten like on a surfboard but um yeah like just every now and again not really that often and so you've said before you your your dad has said that it took you two months before you were absolutely smashing it yeah is that is that a slight exaggeration or were you literally <sighs> just a natural at it yeah do you know what without sounding big-headed no, literally i we start i started surfing we moved down to devon about uh probably like a month after i really started getting into it not just because that my parents are like not that pushy um <laughs> and yeah, within like two months, I was already competing, doing like little competitions. I'd always been really, really competitive as a child in like any sport, didn't matter what it was. Um, so I just kind of had like that fire to just, I wanted to just be like the best. And then by 13, you were competing all around Devon, all around Cornwall. Yeah. And then you hit 14 and you become British champion. Yeah, yeah. That is that was unbelievable. Mad. It was mad. I think for me as well, because growing up down there, it's kind of what everybody did. So you automatically, like, you're at school, everyone's talking about surfing because it's, like, kind of the only thing really to do down there. Um, so to go in and then kind of start beating everyone, lost a couple of friends along the way. Well, you know how it is at school. Um, but, no, it was it was nice for me because I really struggled at school. It was nice to, for me to be able to excel in, like, something else that was not really that related to school. So, yeah, for me it was, uh, it was pretty nice to have so- that. You become British champions. I suppose you get immediately immersed into that surfing community. Um, Did you start travelling then at Um, 14? Yeah, so I actually got sponsored by Billabong when I was 12. So they, at first they sponsored me because they wanted to use me for their photo shoots and things like that as as well as because I surfed a little bit. And they said to me, if you surf a little bit more and you get a bit better and start competing and doing well in the competitions, we can give you like a proper sponsorship. So um, that was, yeah, I must have been like... 12 when I actually got sponsored by them and that was it started traveling doing the European pro juniors and all that kind of stuff so that was when this traveling really kind of you know 
like took off was actually at 14. So does that mean you kind of experienced some forms of education whilst you were being, you know, on tour? Yeah, yeah, So did you have to have a tutor or something on the go? Yeah, so we were five girls, like the main Billabong girls were like five of us and we all kind of travelled and did the same tour and circuit as well as modelling with the brand as well. Um, We had work sent from school until we were probably about... Yeah, I guess like 15. So we'd always be doing like our school curriculum, like when we were traveling around, we always had to have like certain hours to make sure we're doing. I remember being in Peru for the World Juniors. I must have been like 16 and submitting my GCSEs like 10 minutes before my heat being like, okay, got to get this. Because my dad (laughs) always said to me that you have to finish your GCSEs and then you don't have to go to college. I hated school. I really did. I wish I loved it more, but um, I really struggled with it. So for me, it was just like, get it done, get the grades in case I ever need them later on in life. Um, so yeah, really, really made sure that I. Well, got that's those quite done. a unique upbringing, and I suppose what is also unique is that atmosphere that you're being brought up in in the surfing community. From what I know, is quite predominantly male, right? Yeah, yeah. Definitely. So what was what was that like? How did that shape you as well? Um, I think growing up and always just like wanting to be the best in my sports. I think you always kind of have that like fighting spirit. So growing up with literally a hundred brothers that you travel the world with for like nine months of the year, you become really strong. Like you become like a really strong chick. So um, I'm really grateful actually for it being such a male dominated sport when I was growing up, because I think it's made me into the like person I am today and made me stronger in a lot of things that I've had to deal with growing up. So um, yeah, thanks to the boys for being just as mean to me as you would have if I was a boy. <laughs> oh. uh, so you've talked about your deal with Billabong. You got to an age where you started, you just said, I'm not going to compete anymore. So what made you walk away from such a big deal and the surfing community? And what, what was that? What was going through your head? Um, it's weird. I think I'd obviously traveled since the age of 14, like nine months of the year, nonstop tours, photo shoots when we weren't competing we were either shooting for the brands or we were training for the next comp and you'd literally land you'd get back into training and you'd be like non-stop so for me it got to a point where I hadn't lived in the UK for like at that point left at 16 and I was then 21 um, and just that constant like changing of people places you never really could like have proper friendships and relationships with anybody really because you're always leaving you know you had like an end to it kind of thing so I think I struggled with that and also just having like a routine of what you eat every morning and where you sleep at night and just that kind of whole thing of like not really knowing where you're gonna where you're gonna be tomorrow even so I think that by the end of it, as much as it was amazing when I was a lot younger, it got to a point where I was like, okay, I think I want a bit more now. I want some more like structure to my life. And the competing was incredible. And the things that it taught me, like I can, I would never have learned in any other, you know, industry. But um, yeah, it got to a point where I was like, okay, I want to keep surfing because it's always, it's in your blood forever. But um, I just, yeah, I wanted something a bit more, I think. Being on tour, you, you just spoke about not having a set structure in the day You've spoken previously about between the ages of 16 and 21, you suffered yourself from mental health issues. Mm. And how much did that contribute, not having a, a permanent structure daily to what what you experienced? Um, massively. I think for me, I'd grown up and 
like I say, like I was living such a transitional life. One day I'd wake up and I was in America and the next day you'd go to bed and you're in like the complete other side of the world. Um, so for me, it was just that kind of not having control over anything in my life to a certain extent, like even competing, you don't know whether you're going to lose, you're going to come first, you're going to come last. Um, so for me, it was just kind of, it took that and just whisked it up and, you know, bulimia is actually something that you use to have control over your life again and obviously it does the complete opposite and just makes it even more crazy and horrendous. But um, yeah, for me, the the way that I grew up, as much as it gave me so many incredible opportunities and has like made me the person I am today, it, you know, it had came with like the consequences of mental health and, you know, comparing myself to the other girls that I was shooting with and the other girls I was competing against. Um, and yeah, I think just not being able to really properly know who you are because you're being told from such a young age, like you're a surfer and you have to look like this, and you have to have long blonde hair, and you have to have blue eyes, and you have to have tan skin and be in a bikini all day and have photos and then look at them. <laughs> um, so yeah, it definitely, it was hard. It was really, really hard growing up like that, but it was also incredible and I wouldn't want it any other way. So Were you aware that what you were doing, suffering from bulimia, was not healthy for you? Or did you think at the time that it felt like the right thing to do, even though you're now consciously aware that actually it was putting you down? Um, no, definitely not. I think when, so it actually I first got bulimia, I was with a model agency in London um, and I was obviously sponsored by Billabong. I was must have been about 15 at this point and... I remember getting a really good job with a model agency in London and like pretty good money. And I was like, okay, cool. So I've got to keep this going and the surfing going. And then I can like really, this is going to be my career. Then never have to go back to school. This is going to be great. Um, so I was seeing all the girls in my agency and they were like really slim. And then I was looking at the surf girls and I was like, okay, like we're muscly and because, you know, we have to be to do our sport. And I was trying to get this in between of being like a skinny model in London and then be a professional athlete. And it just didn't work. So I remember... I don't know, I think traveling with the girls that you're traveling with and you're always comparing to each other and actually all five of us had some sort of mental health issue. Mine was bulimia and one of the other girls had bulimia. The other one had really bad depression and anxiety and one of the other girls had um, anorexia. So I think it's, you're trying to, it was that first kind of like age where you're changing and becoming like a woman, which is already hard enough. And then you also have been in the limelight since you're like 12 years old in your industry. Um... So yeah, for me, I just, yeah, I guess I just started like eating a bit less. And then I remember actually working out really, really hard on a training day and then like being starving, eating after and then feeling really guilty. It was the first time that I'd felt guilty for eating. And then I made myself sick and then I was just like, okay, I'll be sick a few times, try and lose a little bit of weight and then I'll stop. But it's, you know, it's already a disease. Once you've done it once or twice, it's already, you don't come back from that, I don't think. It just, did it become a habit? Um, yeah, it definitely, it became a habit, became an addiction. It became something that I felt like was the only thing I had control over in my life, which is really scary and it's really sad. But, um, yeah, that's how it kind of. So what helped you get over that huge barrier and actually maybe got you to a point of being able to speak about it and then seek help as well? What was that? Do you remember when that happened and what that process was? Yeah. So I think, so then I was 21, I'd lived in literally so many countries I can't even name them all because it was too many um and at this point I was then in Bali this was the last place that I lived outside of Europe and that was when I got really really ill and that was when it really became my life the eating disorder I was always thinking about like where I'm going to eat and how I'm going to be able to like be sick after and it really really took over everything that I was doing um 
And it got to a point where my parents then, I was so far away from them, you know, I think to a certain extent purposely so that they couldn't figure out what was going on. Um, you kind of push everybody close to your way because you don't want to hurt them. You know, subconsciously, you just push everyone away. Um, so for me, it was then, it was in Bali and they kind of were seeing photos and catching on and a couple of friends actually ended up messaging my parents and being like, she needs to come home. And that was, dad called me, he was like, you're on the next plane and we're, we're, we're sorting this out. And I, my family are incredible. My parents are so amazing. And I wasn't even ready to talk about it at that point, but I knew that I didn't want to hurt them anymore. And I think that was, for me, was the moment my, I got back to England. My dad sat on my bed and he's not a very emotional man. We're very similar in that. Um, and we, he sat there and he was like, you're not doing this. He was like, you're not doing this. We're, you're staying here in Devon until we get this gone. Gone, 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 because you cannot do this to us as a family. I can only agree with how important it is to actually be able to be open with your own mm -hmm. family because you have no idea how supportive they are. And even if you don't have um, the opportunity to speak to your family, there are still people that do want it. Definitely. help you and speak to you, whether that be your friends, whether that be actually seeking professional yeah, yeah. help. And for me as well, what really surprised me was that me and my family are very close, but I found it easier sometimes in the really nitty gritty parts when I was first like accepting that I was actually ill was I found it a lot easier to speak to somebody else that was not connected to my family, not connected in like in any way to me, didn't know anything about my life or how I'd grown up or anything like that. You, I went and spoke to a therapist actually. And, um, it was weird because she kind of like told me that I'm okay, like you're good, don't like don't freak out too much. You've got this problem that we're gonna sort out. And as soon as it was like we rather than just like you, it was I felt like I had like a team around me, you know, like I was like, okay, like we're doing this now, like we're gonna do this together. It's not just me on my own. Because alone I felt like I was never gonna kind of beat it, I guess. Are there any particular techniques that helped you get through those moments, get over it mentally as well? Because obviously it's a phys physical suffering as well as a mental suffering yeah. in both regards. So is there anything that you remember chatting with your therapist or in particular, maybe it was exercise for you actually being a professional athlete. I didn't yeah. know whether that maybe helped. Is there anything that you remember doing a lot that really helped you get over that? Um, I started reading. I'm really dyslexic, like bad. That's like one of the reasons I really didn't enjoy school. Um, but I read so many self self-help books and I just really, I knew that, I had to go really deep within myself to fix it, you know. I knew that it was something that I had created, you know, by the way I'd grown up and the life that I'd lived, I knew that I had created it, so I knew that I could make it right. Um, and, yeah, the self-help books were incredible because I think you can make them your own. Sometimes when you speak to a therapist or something, they try and tell you what they think you should be feeling or you should be thinking, whereas with the self-help, they give you kind of a vague like story to like lead you and then you make it your own from there which yeah. um, I, I mean every person like. is different you're allowed to interpret yeah, it in yeah, every yeah. single exactly. way or definitely. your own way yeah definitely um, but yeah obviously sport for me was is a massive thing it's something that I've always used as like a drug like it's it releases endorphins and I feel amazing when I do it um, I had to be careful because at the time when I was trying not to be sick I had to tr make sure I wasn't trying to compensate for the eating with over exercising but I was at that point I really wanted to get better so for me that wasn't much of an issue. How important was it for you to say to yourself because you talked about earlier about being you know wanting to be this skinny girl at a model agency but also maintaining this athletic body how important was it just to go do you know what I am me I'm happy to accept who I am because obviously mm. you've spoken about before that you may, maybe because you surf you've got broader shoulders yeah, than yeah, yeah, perhaps yeah. your 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 model yeah uh, but <laughs> how important was that to accept that and you were just like you know what? I can be happy like I am mm. right now without having to do any of this stuff 
Um, that took the longest of times. I'm because sure. That I'm sure you're still learning as well. It. Yeah, for sure. Oh, I learn more things about me every single day, um, which is exciting and awesome. And I love that. But for me, it was, I think the moment when I figured that I was enough, like that I was just, just right the way I was, was when I had, fin- well, actually, it was not that long ago. So I, when I had sepsis, it was actually after that. And I... I think it was just the fact that I'd made it through this really big life like stage and that my body was so strong now that I'd made it through sepsis and that I'd, you know, come through all of that and been so, so ill and that I could then like within three weeks I was already back surfing. I was running and I was like, this body is like epic. Save it. Save yeah, it. Sorry. We're still <laughs> going, going through it. Going too far <laughs> forward. <laughs> no, that's, that's, so, that's great though. So you're happy now you're in a great headspace mm-hmm. that's yeah. really important so next stage in your career so to speak so let's you've moved on from surfing and love island comes knocking on the door mm-hmm. so you've spoken about the year before you were actually approached to go on it and you said in an interview before that you weren't um sure you were headstrong enough to go on yeah name of the podcast great exactly. so Here we are. <laughs> what made you the next year say do you know i am headstrong to go on this year what what does the word headstrong mean to you in that sense um headstrong to me was i know what head weak feels like and i knew that i wasn't as headstrong as i could be or i needed to be to be that scrutinized on a tv show watched by that many people um, so for me, was it was never like a dream or an aim to go on to Love Island, but it just became something that, you know, perfect timing ended up coming about and I'd finished my competitive career and I wanted, to, I think I was seeing the impact that this show was having and it looked like loads of fun. So that was, you know, our first thing that was great. And also I was seeing the impact that this show was having and how it was changing people's lives. And I wasn't sure whether at that point it was in a necessarily good way. So I think for me, I kind of stood back through it that year and was like, you know what, I'm not ready to put myself there yet because I don't love myself enough. Like I need to go in there and know that no matter what anybody says about me when I come out of there, that I know that I'm happy just as the way I am. You know, I wanted to make sure that I was really securing myself to come out there and be like, fuck the trolls, fuck you, like I'm good, don't need that. Love Island now there's just it's got it gets so much traction and so much coverage did you feel like there was an incredible amount of pressure when you were going in there Um, because obviously with the incredibly tragic passing now of mike whether who i don't know whether you knew or not but i mean it's just incredibly sad and realizing how much mental pressure there is actually when you come out of that show because you're literally going from zero to hero yeah almost um for me, I'd been in the limelight since I was really young. In my industry, like it's a small industry, but I'd been quite well known there. Um, so I'd kind of been used to being, have people jealous of you and people like saying horrible things just to kind of get one up on you and things like that. So that kind of side of things I wasn't that worried about. And I actually didn't know I was going to even be going into the island until like literally like three days before. Cause, no way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, um, they told me and I was like, literally halfway up Portugal with my best friend and I was like we're gonna have to turn around because I'm flying to New York tomorrow and she was like sick okay cool and it happened so quickly that I didn't really have time to like process it that much I'd already thought about it a lot before and I knew that if it happened then it was great and I was ready for it and if it didn't then it wasn't meant to be um and I remember flying there and landing there and meeting all the people that were kind of like looking after me before I went in and they were like you just don't even seem nervous at all and I'm like well What's there to you be haven't nervous? given me enough time to be yeah, nervous. Yeah, I was like, there's nothing to be nervous about because I don't know what to expect for one. 
And two, like, what's the point in being nervous? Because, yeah, just... <laughs> when you were in the villa, there were a couple of instances. In fact, I think three days in a row, you were openly emotional, despite saying that you're not that yeah, emotional. Yeah, and you, cried, you openly cried <laughs> yeah, on yeah. camera. When you're in there, I know you're completely switched off from the outside world, but were you conscious that you were crying and you were... Were you worried at all that people were going to be watching this and you were like, oh, no, I hope they're not going to judge me for crying? Or were you actually just, like, living in the moment and quite content with how it was going to be received? Um, it's a weird one because I think for me, the whole like situation of like being in the house and everybody already, as I went in quite late, everybody was quite established and had friendships and all those, I, as like everybody was lovely to me, like no one was horrible at all. But I think because you go in and you're kind of this new one that's gone in and like mix things up a bit and maybe like piss some people off or whatever, um, Sometimes you can feel a little bit lonely, you know, like all you want is like your family or you want to speak to someone or sometimes you don't want to speak in front of the cameras and microphones because it's like a bit embarrassing. You are, yeah, you are definitely thinking like however many million people are going to watch this and do I really want them to see me being like this vulnerable? But literally within like two days that completely went and I'm bawling my eyes out on national TV, so there you go. <laughs> um, well, I don't think anyone was judging you, let's be honest. It's okay, like genuinely. I think that's... I think it's. I a- don't even remember what it was about now. Not <laughs> <So I>. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, people remember it. Well, uh, okay, so Love Island comes to an end and you finish fifth? Is that uh, right? I actually don't have a clue. Oh, God. No idea. Oh. Um, so, yes, it was, so it was a good experience, yes, was it? Yeah, it was great. No, I loved it. <laughs> I, joking, for me, I'm it joking. wasn't about like winning or, you know, coming first, second, third for the first time in my life. It was the experience, It right? was, it was the experience. And honestly, I had so much fun in there and I met some really, really amazing people that I will like always keep in touch with and they will always, you know, be some people that you've shared an experience that you can't really explain to anyone. I feel obliged to ask, is there still a massive group chat or is that now dead? The group chat has. I bet. I bet a lot of people are just leaving (laughs) left, right, and centre. Yeah. Well, unless I've just been taken out and the only one. But no, I think it. The first one has definitely quietened down. Yeah. (laughs) Everyone's archived. Maybe until the new one comes up, maybe everyone will like start chatting again and being like, "Oh, like look at this." Are you going to watch this next series? Um, Do you know what? I've actually I'd never watched Love Island before I went in there, which is a little bit mad. But um, I'm going to be away when it first starts, so. if I can get back into it when I get back, then yeah, potentially. Maybe. I've never been a massive TV watcher is my thing. You seem like a very outdoors person, which yeah, is great. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so you come out of Love Island, you have started using your platform to pr- promote good things, you're doing your exercise and you've got all that jazz and then beginning of November, wham, you catch sepsis. Yeah. Can you just tell me a little bit about those, you know, that first day where you were like, okay, I've got it. Um, for me, so obviously I just moved to London, which is mad anyway, because I've lived next to the ocean for my whole life, working really hard, super, super busy. Um, my mum, I hadn't seen mum in like a couple of weeks. So she was like, you're not replying to my messages. I'm coming up to London to see you. I was like, okay, cool, great. We'll go shopping or something, spend a nice day with mum. Um, and I started feeling a little bit weird the day before she was coming up. I like, thought I had like really bad period pains and I was like, this is just so not ideal for mum coming up. I hope we have like a really nice girly day with her. Went to bed that night feeling a bit weird, but like fine. I actually just thought it was like quite a bad hangover because I had gone out drinking like two days before. I was like, this is really sticking around now. Um, <laughs> I was like, that was a really bad one. Um, but then, yeah, so mum called me that morning like, oh, I'm on my way up to London. Um, should I come straight to yours? Or like meet you somewhere else. I was like, yeah, actually, I think you're gonna have to come straight here. I don't feel, I don't feel very well at all. I think I might need to go to hospital. Um, And for my mum to say that, 
that's she, she like oh no sorry for me to say that my mum was literally like what like you want to go I've never ever in my life been like oh I might need to go to the doctor she's always had to like really push me to go so I think she was instantly quite worried she arrived um picked me up and I was already really delirious I'd asked like my housemate like millions of times why have you not gone to work yet like why are you still here and she's like you've literally asked me that so many times why do you keep asking me like I've been like five minutes mm. um so then mum arrived and I was just boiling hot. My, I could literally feel my heart like beating like through the t-shirt I was wearing, sweating. I'd been like rolling around in bed in pain, like with what I thought was period pains. Um, so mum w- popped me in the car. We went to hospital, got straight to A&E and I had a temperature of 250. Um, no, sorry, uh, a heart gonna... rate of 250. Oh my, I was going to say temperature. Yeah, yeah, You'd sorry. Be boiling. Um, but my temperature was also like just crazy, crazy high. Um, and I usually have, my heart rate's usually really, really low, like like 49 around that. So, um, yeah, they instantly were like, okay, she's septic, which I didn't even know what that meant. I'd never heard of sepsis well, ever, Well, I'm ever, just going to say, for anyone that doesn't know what sepsis is, it's a, so it's a potentially life-threatening condition where the body is responding to an infection and it's all about yeah. a chemical imbalance, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. yeah. So I, they then said to me I was septic and I had no idea what that was. And I was like, okay, mum, like, can they just give me some antibiotics and we can we, like, go now? This is way too long. Like, I don't want to be here this long. She was like, no, Laura, you're actually really ill. Like, you can't just leave right now. We're, gonna, like, we're probably going to have to be in here overnight. I was like, no, I've never been in a hospital overnight in my life, ever. Actually, once when I had dengue fever, but that doesn't really count because that's fine. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, so then that was it. And they then put me on, straight onto antibiotics in a drip. And they couldn't find out where it was coming from. They knew that I was getting this pain, um, like like what felt like period pain. So um, In the abdomen area. Yeah, so they first thought it was actually a water infection. Treated me two days with antibiotics and my blood infection just kept getting worse and worse and worse. Um, and so you can leave hospital with a blood infection with 60 and you can be okay and it will sort of just sort itself out. Um, but I had a blood infection level of like 180, 190. So I was pretty ill. Um, took them like four or five days to actually figure out where it was coming from. So I was on three different sets of antibiotics and then they figured out where it came from. Um, and yeah, I ended up having to have an operation. And But then I was fine. I was fine. <laughs> you got through it. It was a end. really dark, dark time. I'm going to be honest. Like It was hard for me to be sat down for that many days yeah so you're in the hospital for 10 days how much did that start affecting you mentally because obviously or we all you actually so switched out of it as well because I suppose those first few days you don't literally know what's happening because one of the um symptoms of sepsis is you're quite delirious yeah, yeah, yeah and you don't really have a concept of time and what's going on it was really weird I actually thought it was really funny which is so ridiculous but because I didn't know how bad it could be and I didn't research. I wasn't going to go on Google and start Googling sepsis because that's just, you know. Well, if I never... start Googling symptoms of a headache, I know I've got about 10 minutes to live. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that, exactly. That's So I was like, I'm not going to Google it. Mum, don't Google it. Don't tell me. I don't want to know kind of thing. Mum has a medical background anyway, so she knew how bad it could so be. So I think once you realised that mum was concerned, you knew the severity of it. So I think maybe the joking stopped. Yeah, and you just well, like... you say that, but also not because I think for a lot of like my life, when things have gone wrong, like traveling or missed flights, my like coping mechanism just joke about it because there's nothing you can do. There's really nothing you can do when you miss a flight. This was a little bit more serious than missing a flight, I will admit. Um, but yeah, it was it was hard. It was really really hard in there in the end. Did it affect your family 
much because obviously you've talked about how important it is having your family support you through mm. the, the first stages of your mental health suffering. But then obviously, I don't know, when you realise that this could be potentially life-threatening, it might does that, did they did your family feel a little bit of a weight on their shoulders as well of trying to support you through it and keep you positive and get you through that tough yeah. stage? So I'm usually like a pretty like headstrong person after the bulimia and after the eating disorder and things like that. I really and also the competing, like my competitive background makes you so headstrong because you just have to like get there and you have to like put it on. Um so for me it was actually really scary because it was the first time in a really long time where I felt really mentally weak. And I remember being in the hospital, it was probably like day five by this point, and I knew I was really ill. And I, I could feel that I was really weak and I couldn't do things that I would usually be able to easily do. I was in a lot of pain. And um, that was the time when I got, and I started just crying. I cried and I cried and I cried for days and days and days. I wanted to leave one minute. I was like, mum, discharge me. Like, I cannot stay in here anymore. Like, it's making me go crazy. Like, I was... It was so hard for me to just be sat still in a hospital. I never thought I was going to ever be the person to sit in a hospital bed for 11 days. Um, it so just shows that it can happen to anyone. Do it, anyone. Is... I'm telling you, like, I, as far as I know, I was one of the like fittest and healthiest people that I really knew, you know. I'd spent my whole life doing sport and, like, that. And the thing is, with sepsis, the healthier you are, the quicker the blood pumps around and the quicker the, like, the quicker it... The infection can yeah, spread. Exactly. Yeah, so, quite. Um, yeah, for me it was hard, and I de- definitely, Mum. Obviously, we were in London. My, my brother and my dad are in Devon, so family split, and we're a really close family. So did they all come up? Dad and my brother were going to come up, and because I was like, I just really want to deal with this, and I almost didn't want anybody to see me that ill, which was really weird. But um, they were on the phone all the time, and I think for me, if they had come to hospital, I don't know why, but I had this thing. If Mum, if my dad and brother came up to London to see me in hospital, it was almost like I was that ill that, like, they thought it was, like, a goodbye or something. And my whole thing, after day five, I really sat in bed that night and I thought, okay, you've dealt with, like, a career of competitive sport and now you've dealt with bulimia and, like, got better through that. Are you really going to let sepsis beat you? Like, something that your own body's created. So you actually started switching your own mentality. Yeah, so I then used the things that I'd used in my, like, bulimia, like, getting better through for the bulimia, I then started to use in the, um, in, like, the sepsis recovery. And it was so weird. I remember, like, being really angry at the nurse. Like, why can you not find out where where it's coming from? Why can you not figure out, like, where the infection is? Because at this point, I was still getting worse. And um, the day that I decided to, like, stop and, like, change my thought process and be, like, positive and, like, smile at everyone in the room and, like, be really nice to the nurses and really, like, nurture myself. I even that day, like, got up for a little walk. I went outside, even though you're not really meant to, but I did anyway. Um, I just needed to, like, do things that were making me feel better. And that day they figured out where it came from. So and I don't know if that's like just luck or, you know, coincidence. coincidence, but that's what happened. So the thing that has always seemed to help me through all of the really dark points again, once again, like my positive mental attitude did it again. That's really, really great to, sh- to show that you've actually got such a, you are literally headstrong yeah, yeah, in the sense that yourself. you were able to change your mentality. And I'm, not, I'm just saying it's not not everyone can do that because obviously you've been put through the paces a little bit mm-hmm. with your career, your upbringing, you've travelled all over this place. Not everyone can do it, but it's, um, I think if people can take a leaf out of your book and maybe say actually having a positive attitude approaching something is far better than going yeah. in and saying, oh, this is, you know, this is not well, good. For me, I remember, so when I, the self-help book that I wrote, read for the um when I was recovering from bulimia, I remember them talking about like dis- disease and how it is a dis-ease in your body. 
and um, how they were saying that you can create them mentally like, in your mind. And I was thinking, maybe I've created this because I've like been in London in a really new environment, I'm away from the ocean. I'm not living my usual, like, just wake up, walk on the beach, go surf, like that kind of life. So then when I came out, I really made sure to enjoy London for what it is. It's very different to what I'm used to. And it's something that I'm still getting used to even now. But it's just like little things like going and finding a little green space in if it's in like Putney or in Richmond. And, you know, like these little, like making the best of what you have in that moment. Like I'm here for a reason. I'm here to, you know, I'm not just in London, like for the fun of it, you know. So for me, it's just making sure that no matter where you are in your life, you're always making the most of it and making like looking at the silver linings, you know, not looking at the negatives. Well, it's so great that you actually made it through that and that you're now fully healthy and you're enjoying life to the full. Yeah. You're filling your time. But what... What are you What are you doing at the moment? What, um, what are you What are you filling your time with at the moment? So currently, I am surfing not as often as I would like, but no. I'm going to Bali in a couple of weeks. So that'll be nice. Um, I'm currently training for a very long cycle. I'm I doing, saw this. This yeah, is exciting. Do you yeah. want to explain a little bit about the cycle because so, you're pr- raising money for a mental health charity? Yeah, I am cycling from Lands End in Cornwall to John O'Groats in Scotland. Um, I don't really know why I said yes to it at the start, but I'm really happy that I have because for me, I think I was a little bit worried when I said yes to it that maybe it was going to prove that I was not back to my just basic level of fitness that I've always had. As like an, an athlete, you always just have that you know basic level. So for me, saying yes to it was like, well, but what if I can't do it? And for me, the thought of failing in something sporty was just the worst. That would be so like horrible for me, but it's just made me really push and make sure that I am after sepsis and eating disorder and all those things just to make sure that I know that I am as strong as I've ever been if not stronger because with my mental strength now like how exciting um so yeah for me the reason I ended up saying yes to it was to prove to myself and others after having things like this then you can come out stronger than you started so yeah I'm doing it for Young Minds which is an incredible charity that I just I love what they do and um, yeah, I just want more people to know about them and to raise money for them is just amazing. And I'm for Sepsis UK for obvious reasons. <laughs> of course, I uh, better I'll get on it donating later. Thanks, mate. yeah, no worries, no worries. <laughs> Getting in the good books. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's pretty awesome. Uh, also, with your fitness as well, I've got to mention you're starting a YouTube channel, which yeah. is massive. Do you want to explain a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's um, awareness for mental health and how sports can help you with your mental health. For me personally, like it's it saved my life. Um, it's something that when I'm having a really, really bad day and I'm really, really sad or I'm really, really down, I can go for even like a 10-minute walk. It doesn't have to be like a crazy 100-mile cycle like I've been doing here and there. Um, it can be literally just a 10-minute walk outside and a bit of exercise and fresh air, how it can just completely change your frame of mind um, and your view on so many things. So for me, it's just like spreading awareness with that and I'm going to, um, yeah, I'm excited to share that because for me, that's a big project. I couldn't agree more how important exercise really is to help your your mental state as well. It's so important and I think everyone should, even if it is just like you say, just a 10 minute walk, just yeah. get outside. Even getting the fresh air is mm-hmm. going to help you a load. Well, as well, it's like just knowing that you're like, you know, sometimes you'll have a really bad day at work and you'll be like, oh God, I can't believe I failed at that thing at work. But then you'll go out and maybe you'll run five minutes quicker because you've got this like pent up bit of like anger. So then you're like maybe failing a little bit in one thing, but then you can go and like beat yourself in in another thing and, you know, do a PB or like something else and it can make you feel, you know, like you're 
You're good. You're fine. You're good. <laughs> okay, I have one final question. I ask this to every single guest that comes on. I've already, well, I asked two questions. One of them is, what does Headstrong mean to you? I feel like we've covered that. <laughs> um, but the, this question is, what piece of advice have you held on to in your life or something that has helped you get through everything that you would want to pass on to young adults who may be suffering, but also would you'd like to help them, you know, support them? So what piece of advice would that be? Good question. Um, to work on yourself. To keep working on yourself. No matter how headstrong you think you are, you can always keep working on yourself and you can always keep improving how headstrong you can be. Um, for me, I think I'm now pretty headstrong, but I also have some really bad days where I look in the mirror and still don't like what I see or, you know, things like that. But it's how you can turn that around. So now I can look in the mirror and I'll think a negative thought and I'll be like, Laura, what are you doing? Like, that's just so ridiculous and so worthless and a waste of time. Um, and then that will be a sign to me that I need to work on that little aspect a little bit more because I'm still struggling with it. So it's just to kind of listen to yourself and the negative thoughts you're having, they mean something, but not what you think they mean. They mean that you need to work on that little aspect of yourself to better yourself, um, but not necessarily like to get skinnier or to, you know, you know, there's, it's not that. You need to look inside and really see what it is that that negative thought is trying to tell you. Something that I've always held on to, I think in order to give other people a sense of happiness, you need to be happy within first. And Definitely. you need to be content with who you are and able to approach life in such a way. And then others are drawn towards you thereafter. And I think mm -hmm. that's really important. So I think that was really great advice. Thanks. Laura, thank you so much for coming on. I'm so happy I finally got you thank on. Thank you for having Get me. In. Oh my God, I feel, I'm so stoked. This has been um, great. <laughs> uh, good luck uh, on the cycle. I'm going to donate. Everyone go check out. It's on Laura's Instagram page. Yeah, and also go check out the YouTube channel because we're going to be doing some fit things. Not me, sorry. Yes, well, actually, well, we'll get you on. That'll okay. be sick. Done. Thank yeah. you so much. Nice. A huge, huge thank you to Laura Crane for coming on to the podcast for this week's episode of Headstrong. I think we can all agree that Laura has got an incredible amount of energy and I think she's had such an incredible life as well. She's clearly gone through a lot of things that have made the person that she is today, who is so positive and simply wonderful to spend time around. As I said to you guys at the beginning, this is my penultimate episode of series one, but I will be coming back hopefully at the, at the end of 2019 with a second series with some incredible guests just like this one. My final episode, episode six, is going to be with blues singer Simon Webb. So please do come and tune in next week, Wednesday at 7am when the episode will be going live on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Be sure to check us out on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Please rate us, subscribe, let all, let all your friends know as well, your family. It's always great to get the word going around about this podcast, sharing the love and sharing the positivity that comes with being headstrong. A huge, huge thank you to Laura's agent, Lauren, who finally replied to me. Thank you. To Jack Graham Thomas, who edits the podcast. To Cozzy, to Harry Neal. And of course, to you guys who constantly come back and listen to this podcast. It means so much to me. Thank you so much. And let's hope that I can keep you guys going on a path to becoming headstrong. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 